Welcome to The Runway, where we cover current events in crypto, Web3, and tech. It's Tuesday, February 20th. Let's take off. First up, Hong Kong Central Bank issues guidance for firms offering crypto custodial services. The HKMA wants authorized institutions to undertake a comprehensive risk assessment, followed by appropriate policies to manage identified risks. Hong Kong Central Bank issued guidance for firms interested in offering custodial services for digital assets. Among the requirements, the HKMA wants firms to hold clients' digital assets and client accounts segregated from the firm's own assets in the event of an insolvency. Hong Kong Central Bank issued guidance for authorized institutions interested in in offering custody services for digital assets as the territory attempts to reclaim its title as a crypto hub. The Hong Kong Monetary, Monetary Authority guidance issued Tuesday adds to the licensing regime introduced last year that gives crypto exchanges a pathway to operate in a regulated manner. In the 11-page expected standards document, the HKMA says it wants authorized institutions to undertake a comprehensive risk assessment followed by appropriate policies to manage identified risks. The entire process should be overseen by the board and senior management. The central bank also wants the sector to uh, allocate adequate resources, including manpower and expertise, to custodial activities so it can manage conflicts of interest that may arise and implement effective disaster recovery arrangements to ensure business continuity. So I think this is fantastic. You know, I think all of this makes great sense for uh, regulation when there are companies custodying assets of individuals and people, right? They're holding, they're, there is, they're holding, you know, third-party assets. So there, there should be a sort of regulatory apparatus around that to make sure that it's standardized and that these companies are following proper procedures and taking caution and actually segregating these funds. We saw a lot of problems with this in the past cycle with the BlockFi's and the Voyagers and the FTX, basically taking customer funds and not segregating them as they should. So that way, in the event that the company fails, the customer's funds and crypto assets are still safe. Let's move on to our next story here. How the halving could impact Bitcoin. Bitcoin halvings have generally been good for the network, but price increases have decreased over time, says Todd Growth, head of research at Coindesk Indices. The new entrants coming into Bitcoin via the recently launched ETF and prices bounce and prices bounce back up towards 250000 it's a good time to dig a bit into the Bitcoin halving. As we're expected to go into another halving event in mid-April, the Bitcoin halving cycle refers to the recurring event that reduces the blockchain rewards paid in Bitcoin and given to miners for validating transactions and creating new blocks on the blockchain. This reduction occurs approximately every four years, specifically when the number of total blocks on the Bitcoin blockchain reaches a certain threshold, currently set at 210,000 blocks. The halving event aims to maintain the scarcity of Bitcoin by gradually decreasing the rate at which new Bitcoins are introduced into circulation. Ultimately, this process will result in a total of 21 million Bitcoins being mined, with no more Bitcoins being generated after the final halving event. So this is the sort of part of the code that Satoshi designed that controls the inflation rate of Bitcoin, and all people who operate and choose to use the network will will know ahead of time how many coins exactly there will ever be and at what rate they will that inflation will come sort of into existence those coins will be uh, added to the coin base to essentially allow people to use them and this is set sort of set in stone set in code and it is sort of this behind it underlies these this idea of absolute scarcity that Bitcoin provides, right? It's a, sort of a scoreboard for all of the activity that occurs in the world. It's this monetary asset that captures all activity and it allows, it doesn't allow anyone essentially to inflate the supply or abuse the system and steal uh, uh, people's purchasing power without participating in the proof of work as a miner would or, you know, providing a good or service or conducting trade. Throughout time and as time has, has gone on, the inflation rate of Bitcoin has halved essentially every four years. So that means that 
every four years, the miners will be getting less of what we call these inflation block rewards, right? So as time goes on and the network becomes more utilized, what we need to see for, for the mining to make sense is for more activity to occur on chain, which creates sort of more fees and more demand for that block space every 10 minutes. And we have seen exactly that over the past couple of years. And uh, really over the past year, especially, we're starting to see this activity on chain on the L1 of Bitcoin really ramp up. So miners are not just getting these inflation rewards, they're also getting these transaction fees and transaction rewards. My take on this issue is that I think that historically, we've seen sort of the supply squeeze every four years. And it's part of the reason Bitcoin price will move, right? Because even if demand remains at this level and you have supply that's been here every four years, that supply gets cut in half, right? So even if demand stays at that same level, eventually the demand out, outstrips the available supply that's available to the market every day, right? What we've seen is then, you know, obviously when supply and demand have a mismatch, it, you know, the asset needs to be repriced and we see this sort of parabolic price increase of Bitcoin. Now, with this having event coming up, it's definitely going to affect the amount of Bitcoin, but every four years, that effect is going to sort of be more, more muted. To offset this, what we've seen is a new sort of institutional forever demand uh, uh, for Bitcoin, right? So we, we've seen all of these ETFs and these ETFs are sort of now just sort of passively every day, the demand has been increased to here because they need to purchase those Bitcoins to put them in the ETFs. So even though the inflation is here, we've actually seen the demand be 12 times what the daily sort of supply issuance is, right? This is a huge sort of factor. And I think this is going to be a huge deal. I think people are going to be very surprised to, to see how explosive the price of Bitcoin becomes when the supply and demand mismatch is, is really so mismatched, right? And when the halving occurs, instead of there being 12 times the demand daily for these coins, it's going to be 25 times the amount of coins that are produced daily that is being eaten and sort of absorbed by the market. What that means essentially is that there's this new institutional sort of forever bid for this buy side bid for Bitcoin that, you know, historically we've never seen. We've only had sort of retail FOMO and, and retails buying Bitcoin, but now you're going to see institutional demand that is just never going to end, right? It's going to be just passive, continual passive allocations to uh, portfolios here. Let's move on to our next story. Ether could be the next institutional darling, Bernstein says. The second largest cryptocurrency is probably the only digital asset other than Bitcoin likely to get spot ETF approval from the SEC, the report said. Ether may be the only digital asset other than Bitcoin to get spot ETF approval in the US. There is a 50% chance of ETF approval by May. Den Kuhn, the Ethereum blockchain's upgrade due in March, will slash transaction costs. I follow this assessment and sort of agree with this assessment. I think that you know, there may eventually be more assets that will be institutionalized. Chainlink is one I can think of, maybe Solana, a couple other of these projects. But I, I definitely do think that Ethereum is going to benefit greatly from this same sort of market dynamics that Bitcoin has right now, in the sense that it is going to be an asset that people want exposure to in traditional ETF portfolios, right? Although you know, not your keys, not your coins, right? We, of course, what we what we want is people to hold these assets for themselves and truly custody them themselves. Having an ETF as part of your portfolio, having funds in an ETF, there are other sort of advantages there, whether it comes to tax treatment and whether it comes to, you know, being able to borrow against ETFs, right? And there's all these other aspects that make having ETFs available a good thing for the market, right? There's pros and there's cons, but, you know, again, I think optionality for markets, right? If you really want to hold your, uh, hold, you know, if you want to hold your keys, fantastic. And, I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, that makes sense. But people might also hold some and they might also have someone in ETF, right? Because if you are holding your own keys, there are other risks involved, right? That you could be robbed or that, you know, you could lose your keys. So, you know, it's good to diversify and spread out your risk in a lot of ways. Let's move on to our next story. What the Warren Satoshi flag moment means. 
the, this is one of my favorite stories of the day. The prank was believable because even Bitcoin critics like Senator Liz Warren might have to embrace crypto voters in the wake of ETF approvals, said Staniel Kuhn. So it looks like Elizabeth Warren, sort of uh, probably somebody in her in her, on her team, signed off on this without really just sort of rubber stamped this thing. But it, you know, this is kind of like a commemorative thing that you can do with your senators and stuff and congresspeople. The flag of the United States of America. This is to certify that the accompanying flag was flown over the United States Capitol in honor of Satoshi Nakamoto for the 15th anniversary of Bitcoin, the first truly inclusive financial system that is providing new economic freedoms to populations previously ignored by both public and private institutions. <laughs> uh, Americans are forever grateful. Let's see this. And it looks like Elizabeth Warren, she kind of just put her signature on the on this document and they flew it over the Capitol. Uh, you know, of course, she didn't. She wasn't. Uh, they just this is sort of just a troll. They troll her. They did a pretty good job trolling her. So I love that. Next up is crypto's killer app finally here. Crypto is a general purpose technology like the steam engine, electricity, the Internet and AI, because GPTs require a major rewiring of the economy to be useful. We inevitably overestimate how quickly they can ch will change our lives. But when change eventually happens, it is faster and more pervasive than expected. After more than 10 years of experimentation and infrastructure building, crypto is at a turning point and might soon find its chat GPT moment. The internet incubated for decades within academic and military circles before becoming commercial. Similarly, artificial intelligence was mostly a research endeavor before OpenAI, Tesla, and big tech turned it mainstream. For crypto believers, decentralization has always been the holy grail. Historically, tech has swung like a pendulum between centralization and decentralization, from mainframes to PCs, Microsoft Windows to the web, and finally to the walled gardens of today's tech giants. The next logical step, an open infrastructure powered by, you guessed it, crypto. But what does open mean? After all, the web is already built on open standards and protocols, but that, but that led to more market concentration, not less. What is different this time is that crypto pushes for deeper forms of interoperability and portability from your social graph to your content to your bank account. And this has sort of been, you know, one of the main failures of big tech and, and sort of web 2.0 is exploiting the underlying users themselves and essentially accumulating all of the wealth and all of the value and really taking away the optionality for users. And it's just, it was just sort of a flaw in the way the system was designed where web three sort of gives that control, that optionality, that freedom back to, that ownership of the protocols themselves back to the users, right? This is what web three is all about. I'm going to kind of go through and read this whole article just because I think it's such a powerful and interesting piece. Um, normally, I won't read the whole article, but this is really, really fascinating. In payments, the lack of interoperability in today's services is very salient. Digital wallets and card networks do not allow you to send or receive money outside of their curated network. Similarly, you can't move your funds from one fintech app to another without going back to your bank account, which still acts as the only interoperability layer for our financial lives. Incumbents with market power fight tooth and nail to prevent interoperability and portability. They don't want their customers sending or receiving payments to and from their competitors too easily, nor do they want you to be able to, to move your business elsewhere if you are dissatisfied with their terms and conditions. It's not good for their bottom line, even if, if, even if it would be great for everyone else. The same is true for access to distribution. While you may have invested countless hours building your audience, identity, reputation, or social graph on a platform, you never truly own the fruits of your labor. The platforms do, and it doesn't matter if you are a creator, app developer, gig worker, or merchant. The platform you help scale has all the leverage. 
Crypto, by forcing interoperability and portability into platforms, turns today's walled gardens gardens into open infrastructure anyone can build and compete on. While this represents a major threat for incumbents, because the technology is developed in a decentralized fashion, it also takes a very long time to mature. We've now been waiting for crypto's killer app for a decade, just like AI was waiting for its chat GPT moment. So when it arrives, what will it look like? Probably a bit clunky, niche, a niche, and maybe even toy-like at first. Think frames on Farcaster, interactive applications that can be embedded in posts, essentially like a fully-fledged app store in your social feed. Innocuous, right? But this crypto primitive is potentially transform- is transformative from a market structure perspective. It allows developers to distribute their creations freely, escaping the walled gardens that dictate how they get paid and what they can build. But couldn't we already do this on the web, you might ask? Yes and no. That's where crypto's multi-year investment in rebuilding the infrastructure of the internet shines. Frames are crypto-native apps, meaning authentication, identity, and payments are just a click away for users. Unlike Web2 app platforms, where control over the underlying data helps build barriers to entry, Frames data can also live on-chain, where it is accessible to everyone. Multiple companies and projects can build front ends to that data, aggregate it in novel ways, and compete with different business models business models. Users are in full control of their social graph and content and can move freely between the resulting products and experiences. This combination will unlock frictionless commerce, novel ways for creators and developers to monetize their ideas, and eventually new type of marketplaces and platforms will emerge and compete. Developers on frames are rebuilding key parts of the Web2 and mobile stacks with crypto building blocks, and that's inspiring. Even more intriguing, closed platforms will struggle to replicate frames openness as it threatens their traditional monetization and creation, uh, curation models. Are frames the future? Maybe not, but they're a glimpse of what crypto has been promising from the beginning. The infrastructure is now in place, and it's up to developers to unleash their creativity. Remember Bitcoin? It took over a decade, but now it's the uncontested bridge between traditional finance and crypto, and its network can serve as the foundation for new payment and financial services. Just like AI went from meh to ChatGPT overnight, decentralized networks and applications are finally getting slick enough to capture mainstream attention. In 2023, it was important to urge crypto entrepreneurs to ditch the obsession with new token launches and reckless trading and focus on real value for consumers and businesses. The FTX winter was a harsh lesson, but the seeds that were planted then are starting to sprout. By focusing on utility instead of speculation, crypto can finally deliver on its long-awaited promise. So is the killer app here? Maybe not yet, but the stage is set for a much more exciting act too. Stay tuned. Uh, so this is Christian Catalini. This is a fantastic article. It looks like he also you know, thanks some other people who helped with the article here. Um, but yeah, very well written article in Forbes here, I would say. I would say this is... Uh, he looks like he's the co-founder of LightSpark and also the MIT Crypto Economics Lab. So I, I I will post a link to this article in the show notes. I'll have my team do that. And I think it's worth a read, you know, and, and sort of kind of pour over to think. It's a, a way to think about sort of what's happening and all the underlying things that are, that are part of Web3 and why it's important. Next up. Japan moves closer to allowing venture capital firms to hold crypto assets. If approved in parliament, the draft bill could see VCs fund the Web3 startups in exchange for crypto assets. Japan's government approved a bill that would allow venture capital firms and investment funds to hold crypto assets. If passed by parliament, the bill could boost investment in Web3 startups. Japan has been a global leader in framing a regulatory framework for stablecoins and has indicated plans to promote Web3 while remaining tough on user protection. In September 2023, the Nikkei reported the country planned to relax rules for VC firms to invest in crypto startups. So I think this is good and bad, right? The good part of this is they are laying some 
regulatory framework for you know regulated entities, VCs, companies to participate in the market structure. I think that's largely good. Of course, you know venture capital is literally you know they're looking to risk and spend money and, and speculate and do these things. I think of course they should be allowed to participate and engage in these things. Right. The only thing that is a little bit frustrating is this focus on the walled garden that that has always sort of been a part of the market structure, at least here in the US. There's two sides to every coin, right? One side is the user protection and, you know, trying to prevent people from being stupid. But at the end of the day, you know, people have to live and learn and make decisions and grow. And, you know, that, that has to happen through experience. And sometimes you get burned a little bit on that front, right? It's part of freedom and it's part of, you know, being able to participate and be a part of things and have opportunities for, you know, life-changing wealth and to create wealth and spec and, and do the same things that VCs do, right? Do the same thing that allows someone to go from low, from, you know, the lower class to the middle class or from the middle class to upper class, right? To make these jumps to, and it's just, it's part of optionality and freedom. Hopefully they'll find a way to allow even the common person to participate in wealth creation opportunities without sort of locking them out. Flood of money from crypto super PACs could fund potential challenger to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I know we spoke about this the other day. This is, it's, it, I'm happy to see this. I really do hope she gets taken out here and we, we get a better candidate, a better representative in office. Let's move to the next one. South Korean ruling party pledges two-year delay for crypto tax as elections loom. The ruling party argued it would take two years to establish a system that oversees crypto transactions similar to the stock exchange. The People's the People Power Party, South Korea's ruling party, has started a push to delay crypto gains taxes for another two years as part of the campaign promises for the upcoming general election in April. Looks like they want to sort of have some time to create a regulatory regime around this, which I think is, is a good thing. And here's what they said. Local media outlet The Herald Business Daily reported that the political party shared its stance that creating a general framework for crypto is a must before diving into taxation. The party believes that taxing crypto should only be possible once this base framework has been established. I think this is largely true, right? But going to offer regulatory clarity and a path forward for compliance and all these things, which, you know, a lot of companies do like that, right? They want to see that. They want to know the rules. They want the government to do their job and sort of say, hey, these are the rules of the road. Now go play the game, right? And we're going to try to let you guys play as much as possible. And, you know, there's just going to be some rules here. And, and, and that way you can operate with confidence and, you know, people can be protected in certain ways, right? Like if you're having, if you, if you're, if you are a major company and you're custodying individuals' funds, right? That should, that should be segregated, right? Like in the example we read, read about earlier in Hong Kong, right? Like this just common sense things, common sense rules for centralized entities that they should have to play by. And, you know, before those are in place, I like what their thought process is here. Hey, we're not going to tax and do all these things until we, we have a plan here so we can, you know, provide this clarity and provide this service to the market. And then we will exact our tax on that system and clarity that we're providing. It is a common theme here. We see a lot of Asian countries really leaning in and the way it's looking now, it seems like Asia in general is largely going to be at the forefront of this Web3 tech revolution. And, you know, I think we're going to see some incredible uh, wealth created for the for the countries that get this right and sort of attract the talent to their shores and provide the clarity and the system so people can participate and people can have the freedom to innovate. And they know that they're wanted there, right? They're going to bring their dollars, their money, their tax, everything to those to those areas. Another story that I thought was kind of interesting, it looks like Virginia subcommittee proposes modest $17,192 yearly funding for states blockchain and cryptocurrency commission. A larger funding proposal of Virginia subcommittee has suggested a yearly allocation of less than $20,000 for the state's newly formed blockchain and cryptocurrency commission. My take on this is, you know, we'd like to see a little bit more uh, funds go towards this to provide this uh, commission. Uh, $17,000 does not seem like a lot, but at least, hey, it's a start. Let's move on. Full disclosure, I own, you know, some of these stocks. 
um, why Palantir Technologies, Arm Holdings, and other artificial intelligence stocks have skyrocketed 50% or more in February. The rapid adoption of artificial intelligence has been gathering steam over the past year, but there's been a notable uptick in AI-related developments over the past several weeks. Since the start of February alone, shares of Palantir Technologies have jumped 55%. Super Microcomputer, Arm Holdings, and SoundHound AI skyrocketed 120% as of the market close on Thursday. The common thread that runs through these companies is the accelerating adoption of AI. There wasn't a single development that drove these stocks higher, but rather the growing tidal wave of AI that's beginning to overtake the tech industry. So this was an interesting article because it sort of highlights this idea that those who are making the picks, the picks and shovels, right? The chip companies, the server uh, component companies that are sort of making the picks and shovels for this next revolution is, of course, they are going to benefit, right? NVIDIA is making the chips. Um, TSMC is the chip fabrication place. Uh, Palantir, super microcomputer makes servers. Arm Holdings makes chips as well, right? So these are the picks and shovels of this next AI sort of compute revolution. Next up, Coinbase is an unstoppable crypto giant. Coin continues to outperform expectations, and full disclosure, I'm a holder of uh, Coinbase, continues to outperform expectations, and that can continue as the crypto market picks up and more innovations take place on the blockchain. In this video, Travis Hoyam covers, uh, covers Coinbase's recent earnings and why they're so bullish for the future of the industry. Another focus on, on Coinbase sort of breaking records here and, you know, break, a record breaking profits, it seems. Like that they posted, I think last week, and you know this is not going to slow down. They they have a really good team. They've been very slow moving on things in a lot of ways, trying to be regulatory compliant on stuff where the government and Congress has really dropped the ball. They've really made a strong effort. I think they are, you know, probably the sleeping giant, this dark horse to to even overtake Binance and, and some of the largest uh, exchanges that have been around, right? So I think Coinbase will eventually be the number one. It will be the sort of uh, Mount Gox, like like Mount Gox, you know, a decade ago was was sort of the go-to. And then it was, uh, there was a couple sort of smaller exchanges that uh, had their moments in the sun, right? Poloniex and, and some of these other ones, but then Bittrex. But now it's sort of finances this, 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 this top tier, number one sort of global crypto exchange. I think Coinbase is eventually will be the number one exchange in the world. Let's look at some takes. Banks sent regulators a letter asking to make holding Bitcoin easier. <clears throat> so I'm going to read this real quick just because it's kind of important. And another sort of uh, thorn in the side of the SEC, they are you know sort of making these rules and th these guidances. And one of them is called uh, SAB 121. And this is sort of the Bank Policy Institute and some of these other you know entities sort of saying, hey, this is really unworkable, but they're sort of putting it in a, night, a nice light. The Honorable Gary Gensler, yeah, he's, he's very honorable, let me tell you, not. Dear Chair Gensler, the Bank Policy Institute, the America's Bankers Association, the Financial Services Forum, and the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association write to request that the Securities and Exchange Commission consider targeted modifications to Staff Accounting Bulletin Number 121 to address recent policy developments and the challenges that SAB 121 has posed for U.S. banking organizations since it was issued on March 20, March 31st, 2022. As the two-year anniversary of the issuance of SAB 121 approaches, the associations believe now would be an appropriate time to examine and discuss the implications of SAB 121 for regulated banking organizations. There have been several relevant developments during this two-year period, including the GAO, the generally accepted accounting report issued in October, uh, approval of certain spot Bitcoin ETPs, and the SEC's proposed rule on safeguarding advisory client assets that would cover the custody of digital assets if finalized as proposed. The association believe the associations believe that SAB 121 can be modified to mitigate the specific challenges identified herein without undermining the stated policy objectives. And so that's a sort of just pushback uh, from banks that are sort of being kept away 
from being able to custody and compete in this in this space and provide service to people and institutions. This is probably one of the coolest things that I've seen, especially in regards to uh, all of the sort of energy FUD and stuff that's been coming out about Bitcoin mining. And it's kind of a unique story about Texas's grid, the benefits that the demand response has really provided to their grid to stabilize their grid. We now have the data to back up the previously untold story of how Bitcoin mining stabilized the grid and saved Texans $18 billion. Number one, in 2021, Berkshire Hathaway Energy first proposed to ERCOT that they invest up to $10 billion in buying Berkshire Hathaway's gas peaker plants that would protect citizens from future blackouts by providing emergency energy of 3 to 4 gigawatts in time of need. Fly in the ointment. ERCOT CEO, who presided over the winter Yuri ERCOT blackouts, is fired. The new interim CEO, Brad Jones, is appointed as troubleshooter to safeguard ERCOT against future blackouts. Coincidentally, China's mining ban causes massive migration of Bitcoin miners to the ERCOT grid. Brad Jones investigates impact on grid and discovers Bitcoin mining can be part of his solution to bring stability to the grid by providing a more flexible energy consumer than any other approaches he's seen. Brad Jones embarks on a bold strategy to forego expensive investment in gas peaker plants that would not fully solve the problem and result in higher energy costs to Texans in favor of including Bitcoin mining as the key element of his demand response program. Together with weatherizing generation equipment, the strategy is successful and despite even larger, longer, more extreme weather events, ERCOT does not experience another blackout. In 2022, Brad Jones publicly declares that not, not only that, not, that not only that crypto mining has helped to stabilize the ERCOT grid, but that it helps find a home for new re renewable energy on the grid. Bitcoin miner presence grows to three gigawatts. So what does that mean? Three gigawatts, you know, that is a massive amount of, you know, of energy, right? That's like three, I think that's, I believe that's 3000 megawatts of energy, right? That now can just be turned off. If the grid needs all of that energy for some extreme event, Bitcoin miners can literally flip a switch, press a button and shut down, you know, thousands and thousands of megawatts of energy, you know, at the drop of a hat, if the grid needs it. Most mining companies participate in ERCOT's demand response programs. Brad Jones continues to decline Berkshire Hathaway energy peaker plants. They are no longer necessary. With three gigawatts of flexible load resource on the grid, there is no business case for three gigawatts of gas peaker plants. It makes more sense to have more flexible power consumers than very expensive gas peaker plants idling all year just for those one-off occasions where they need to fire up. Brad Jones compliments Bitcoin mining companies for helping keep the cost of energy low for Texans. Don't be surprised if Hathaway Energy is and will continue to lobby behind the scenes for Texas's Senate committee votes to swing clip Bitcoin's mining ability to provide demand response. To reiterate, Bitcoin mining has obviated the need for these gas power plants. At the time, I thought this would make for a brilliant academic study. It turned out that a couple of academics thought the same thing. Their study recently came out. Their findings fully supported Brad Jones's logic. They found that when Bitcoin mining was used in conjunction with demand response, there was no longer a need for gas peaker plants. It would appear that Berkshire Hathaway Energy continues to lobby intensely for more gas plants, arguing that they are needed in case of emergencies, despite both the grid owner and peer-reviewed research demonstrating that they are not needed when you have multiple gigawatts of flexible load coming from Bitcoin mining data centers. The estimated cost that would presumably be passed on to Texan power users in the form of higher power bills has now ballooned to $18 billion. To that, so Texas power users are saving eighteen billion dollars by not having to, you know, pay for these gas peaker plants and just allowing Bitcoin miners to consume energy and make money for the energy company in a lot of ways. And then when the energy company needs them to shut down their miners to to, to move that power to people who really need it in an emergency, it's as simple as you know sending out the demand response request. So I I went ahead and tagged uh, Elizabeth Warren and I also tagged Joe DiCarallis, who is the EIA or the IEA 
one of those two who's in, who is part of the Biden administration who's, who's sending out the uh, the agency that declared an emergency that you know we have we have to to get all this information because it's an emergency right in fact no it's actually the opposite these Bitcoin mining data centers are actually solving the emergency problem right so I tagged him on this thread I doubt he will you know read it and, and look at it but if he does you know that would be really cool he really should mark my words Bitcoin mining is going to become a key pillar of U.S. energy policy within the next five years this is from A B Brammer. Nice quote. Next up, I got a couple little posts from Robert Breedlove. Um, he always does, you know, great Bitcoin takes and great understanding of the history of money and all of these ideas behind money, right? So here is a, uh, a short clip of Robert Breedlove where he says, the amount of energy necessary to successfully hijack the Bitcoin network is far beyond the reach of any single organization or nation state. Since the Bitcoin network consensus rules cannot be unilaterally changed, it is most likely that all players will simply adapt to its rules. As the old adage says, if you can't beat them, join them. Next up. Prior to coinage, every time money changed hands, the weight and quality of the monetary metals transacted had to be verified. Coinage standardized money in a way that accelerated free trade and thus increased productivity. However, the standardization of coins required users to trust coin issuers not to misrepresent the weight or quality of the coins. Bitcoin is the world's only standardized coin that does not require users to trust a coin issuer. And this was a response to uh, Snowden's take here. Unpopular but true, Bitcoin is the most significant monetary advance since the creation of coinage. If you don't believe me or don't get it, I don't have time to try to convince you. Sorry. And that is a famous little uh, post that Satoshi left on the Bitcoin Talk forums way back in the day. <laughs> so he's stealing Satoshi's little uh, quote there, but very clever. And finally, which I love this one as well, money is the scoreboard for economic games. Printing money manipulates the scoreboard by awarding points to players that have failed to perform any useful work, thus incentivizing manipulation over performance. Bitcoin is the scoreboard for economic games that cannot be gamed. Dennis Porter. Bitcoin will become a check and balance against the abuse of monetary policy via central bank, which will ensure proper division of power. Governments can keep printing endlessly if they so choose, but we the people can choose to opt out with Bitcoin. Balaji had this interesting video here about a little startup city on the island of Roatan. It's called Prospera. It's crypto, it's bio, it's robo, and it's not San Francisco. So this is very intriguing. A new startup city named Prospera. Eric Brimman is the founder of Prospera. Bitcoin is accepted here, and augmentation is happening. We've got blueprints for buildings, and even new buildings. It's time to build. We've got robotics. We've got genetics. I came for the Vitalia Longevity Conference, where I spoke with my friends Noble, Zuko, David Poor, and Brian Johnson. What's my favorite part about startup cities? The fact that they're happening. So as we move along and, and governments get greedy with taxes and governments make rules and regulations that cause people to see, we're seeing this happen in California, New York, here in the United States, uh, crazy sort of uh, politicized judgments and, and crazy activist judges and politicians, um, you know, acting crazy and, you know, going after political opponents and, and court and, and just, you know, totally abusing their power, excessive taxation and breaking of the sort of the social code um, between the people and, you know, wasting tax dollars and, you know, decriminalizing violence and theft um, and destruction of, of private property um, and stealing of private property. And we're seeing this happen sort of, you know, in California. California and San Francisco and New York, people 
are going to sort of opt out and vote with their feet and look at different locations, right? So people are going to move to El Salvador. They're going to move to places like Prospera. They're going to go to places like Hong Kong and Singapore um, where, you know, they're treated better and they're treated well and they're, you know, they are taken care of and they are allowed to prosper and they have freedom and they have low taxes so they can produce and create. And they're encouraged. The governments there are incentivizing them them to come to those sandboxes. So Prospera is just another example of that. This was from over the weekend. I kind of thought this was funny just to kind of uh, iterate on the idea that crypto is 24-7. Bitcoin, Web3, it doesn't, it doesn't sleep, right? So on a Saturday, you know, you can actively buy and trade cryptocurrency, right? So Ryan Selk is kind of kind of threw a tongue in cheek and, 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 and sort of pointed this out over the weekend. And if you look now a couple of days later, you know, you see obviously the prices is up significantly from where it was over the weekend, the prices of crypto assets, right? So it would be a shame if retail went to Coinbase and Kraken and front ran another five to 10% of Wall Street demand this holiday weekend, a real shame. And if you actually look of how that sort of played out, that's exactly what happened, right? Ethereum right now is is, is breaking $3,000 and Bitcoin is up, you know, maybe 5%, uh, three to 5%. So, you know, that's like sort of exactly what happened. And that is one of the beautiful parts of this is that retail can participate and the average individual has 24 hour 24 7 access to these markets. Justin, Bitcoin ETFs are catching up to gold ETFs for assets. 37 billion for BTC and 93 billion for gold after just 25 trading days. Gold ETFs took 7,030 days to reach 93 billion. Bitcoin ETFs took 25 days to reach 37 billion. Subjecting grayscale, BTC ETFs are 13.3 billion. So BTC ETFs are growing at 40 times the rate of gold ETFs. Probably nothing. Really kind of show you the demand there for uh, Wall Street and for, you know, institutions to get access to Bitcoin and have it in an ETF wrapper. This is a really interesting historical sort of video here uh, by Dan Held. The last world reserve currency won't be issued by a government. It'll be Bitcoin. So very interesting. And I do agree with this take. I think eventually it's inevitable that Bitcoin is sort of this global reserve currency, uh, this global reserve assets, right? So here you can see throughout history that, you know, in the US, you can see our, our short time being global reserve currency. And you can see that it was first, it was Portugal and, you know, Spain and the Netherlands. And this is only for the past 700 years. I mean, going back even further is a lot, a lot different, a lot different as well. There's going to be tons of other countries, uh, Spain, Netherlands, France, Britain, and that now it's sort of the US's turn. And, you know, I think Bitcoin is sort of inevitable. This is a cool tweet that resurfaces from time to time. You know, it sort of shows the the physical to the the, the analog to the digital in a way, um, sort of the growth and explosion and light. And you can see the light bulb, the candle to light bulb, then a horse to a car, then paper to sort of the internet and, and web pages, and then, you know, money and fiat bills to Bitcoin. And finally, this post by Tim Pool is kind of funny. <laughs> I hope you bought Bitcoin or something. And he kind of shows the US debt clock, national debt, debt per citizen, debt per taxpayer, US federal spending, and it just, you know, shows the explosive growth of, of government sort of abusing the taxpayer, abusing spending. And of course, the only way out of this is and, and the way that they always take is to print money, which just steals from people, essentially. That's all I got for you guys today. Stay safe, stay blessed, never stop learning and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening.